You're listening to BDO Spotlight on SPACs, a podcast series for regular insights into one of the hottest trends in the capital market space. Joined by an exciting guest list, tune in to hear our hosts from BDO SPAC practice share their experiences and a wealth of knowledge around the rapidly evolving world of special purpose acquisition companies. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Stevenson. I am a partner and the national practice leader for BDO's Accounting and Reporting Advisory Services Group. And pleasure to have with me today, Andrew Pendergast. Pendergast. Uh, he's the managing director of the SPAC and GPL practice leader for mergers and acquisitions risk solutions at NFP. So in good afternoon to you, Andrew. It's nice to have Andrew on. Um, because we're going to talk about some topics and Andrew is going to delve into some topics that we are seeing in the SPAC ecosystem um, that we don't normally talk about from a BDO perspective. So having uh, Andrew and his uh, specialization on today is, is particularly helpful. Some of those things that we're going to talk about today uh, involve the current litigation environment around SPACs. Uh, we're going to talk about some DNO uh, issues uh, facing SPACs today. We'll talk about uh, coverage options, and we'll talk about some fairly specific and unique items as it relates to change of control adjustments, things of that nature. And just for clarity, Andrew, when we're when I when I use the term "we," I, I'm referring to you. So um, <laughs> just to let you know. Um, so with that, those those items as a backdrop, maybe we'll just get started. Um, not necessarily with all the items that I just listed, but, you know, for the audience perspective, Andrew, maybe we can, before we get too far into those details, you could just kind of start with what is DNO insurance broadly um, and how it applies and what we're talking about today. And maybe we'll just set the stage for the rest of the discussion with kind of that, that, that piece of it. Yeah, that's perfect, Mike, and, and appreciate the introduction and, and thanks for having me on here to kind of discuss you know, the insurance implications in today's, you know, kind of regulatory environment and, and how DNO insurance is used as a tool to kind of offset the risks and liabilities that you face either as a SPAC sponsor team or a target company. Uh, and then even kind of post-close, post-DSPAC, how that combined company can uh, deal with, you know, the, the regulatory and litigation environment that it might see post-close. And so Directors and Officers Liability Insurance is a product that's intended to protect uh, both the individual directors and officers uh, of an entity uh, and the entity itself in the event that they are named in def as defendants either in civil litigation or you know, in the context of a SPAC, most likely a securities class action, um, whereby the insurance policy will pay defense costs uh, and a settlement on behalf of those individuals to the extent that they are required uh, to do so. So it's basically a backstop to the balance sheet uh, right, for the indemnification that provides to the individual D's and O's. And in certain situations uh, where indemnification maybe is not available, which is something that's kind of unique to SPACs in that they don't really have the assets pre-closed to pay for indemnification, uh, the policy is going to pay uh, directly on behalf of the individuals in those cases. And so um, it's intended to be that safeguard uh, against those types of issues and liabilities uh, that arise. And you know, the, the, the points that we'll talk about today when we talk about what does the litigation environment look like, what do the new SPAC rules do from a liability perspective, all tie into what a DNO policy is intended to protect you against. Got it. Okay. Well, yeah, and I think you 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 provided a great segue there, uh, talking about the current environment for litigation and for SPACs. So, 
<clears throat> with that, maybe what, what are the types of lawsuits you're currently seeing with SPACs? And then are there any particular areas that you see where class action lawsuits are being brought with a greater degree of frequency maybe than others? We can talk sure. About that. So, you know, kind of from a, from a broad sense, right, from, from a frequency perspective, certainly the frequency of securities class action claims brought against SPACs has increased over the past 18, 24 months with the explosion of popularity of, of SPACs as, as a uh, as a product, um, we did you know kind of a historical look here at NFP and, and put some, uh, some some thought leadership out there recently that showed kind of in 2020, right, um, one in every five DSPAC deals was subject to a securities class action litigation. If you look at the securities class actions that have filed this year against SPACs, they they make up close to a quarter of all uh, securities class action filings uh, made, right. So certainly um, frequency is up year over year, and that has a lot to do again, right, with, with the number of SPACs that are out there. Generally speaking, the litigation is tied to the DSPAC transaction. And so if we look at kind of the statistics of how many are out there right now, right, there's, there's still 599 SPACs today uh, searching for, for targets. We would expect the frequency to continue to, to increase kind of in line with those trends. As far as the types of claims, um, that we typically see, they kind of fall into three buckets, right? There's there's nuisance claims that relate to the proxy filing, and I'll go into more detail with each of these. Um, there are those that come in post-DSPAC that relate back to the proxy filing, and then there's some new direct actions for breach of fiduciary duty that are being brought in, in Delaware State Court. So let's dive into each one of those kind of individually, right, and, and what the implications are. So nuisance-style claims, right? Um, generally speaking, they're securities class actions that are filed very shortly after a, a proxy is filed right, or, or an announcement of a deal. And what they will allege is that um, effectively the proxy is inadequate in the disclosures that it makes and that shareholders do not have enough information to rely upon to vote yes or no and, and basically make an informed decision, right? Um, typically those claims are, are being dismissed pretty readily. It, it would appear that the plaintiff's firms are kind of trolling around for a class and trying to collect fees. And so from an insurance perspective, that, that rarely amounts to a, a large dollar amount. It's, it's kind of somewhat of a cost of doing business. The, the claims get dismissed pretty readily. The proxy-related claims that come in post-DSPAC are generally more severe, more concerning. And what that will look like is a proxy is filed, uh, a transaction or DSPAC is completed. And then, you know, on average, you know, 10 to 12 months later, um, there will be a securities class action filed that alleges that the proxy was materially false or misleading um, as a result of, of some sort of uh, issue. Usually that's a result of maybe a short sale report that's been kind of pretty common where they're pointing to the projections that were made within that proxy filing and saying, you know, you made these, you know, you couldn't hit these targets. Um, you've missed them. The stock price is now down 30, 40 percent. We're bringing a suit against you uh, for that loss. Um, and in those cases, it's the target company that's implicated, it's the SPAC team that's implicated, and the allegations can kind of span pre and post close. So they'll point to the proxy. They may also point to the Ks and the Qs and the press releases that came out uh, post close. And of the call it you know 60 securities class actions that have been filed um, in the past year and a half, almost all of them kind of relate to those those proxy related issues. What is a new and emerging trend? Um, when it comes to litigation are these direct 
actions being brought in Delaware State Court where they are alleging a breach of fiduciary duty um, on behalf of the SPAC team and the SPAC sponsors. And they're bringing in more parties or, as defendants uh, to those claims than historically have been, right? So the proxy-related claims, generally speaking, it'll be the CFO, the GC, the CEO of the target company, and maybe a few members of the SPAC. The SPAC itself will be brought into those claims. Um, in these instances, for example, in multi-plan and then more recently, the, the Heisen litigation that was brought in March, you're bringing in not only the SPAC team, but the sponsor LLC that was created in conjunction with the SPAC. Um, they will also bring in, if there was a financial institution sponsor, right, for, for the example of the Heisen litigation that was Riverstone, um, as essentially kind of a controlling shareholder, right, behind the scenes, uh, whereby, you know, the thought previously was that they were somewhat insulated as the SPAC is not, right, a direct subsidiary of those entities. Um, in those claims, right, not only are we expanding the, the uh, entities and individuals that can be brought into those, uh, but they're also applying kind of the entire fairness standard, which is somewhat different than your traditional securities class action claim in that um, they are requiring or the state of this, the court is requiring um, that the SPAC team prove, right, that the uh, that the deal or the transaction was fair to all parties. Um, in traditional securities class action litigation, it's the onus is on the plaintiffs to, to show or prove that it was it was unfair. So those are, the, those are the things we're keeping an eye on, right? So, you know, you have your nuisance claims, you have the more traditional proxy related claims that we see most frequently. And then we have these new direct actions, uh, breach of fiduciary duty in state court. And that's, that's what we're keeping our eye on. Okay, so, so plenty of things to focus on. Um, and it doesn't sound like the environment is getting um, any easier for SPAC, SPAC sponsors or, or co-sponsors, target companies as part of this process. So. Um, but maybe I don't want to switch gears completely, but, um, maybe in connection with some of the things you're talking about, let's kind of pivot a little bit to the new proposed rules that the staff put out. Uh, so back yep. in March, the SEC obviously proposed a host of new rules and disclosures and some other requirements related to SPACs and as well as the DSPAC transaction. We, we had a separate podcast with the head of our SEC department on this. And so if you're interested in that, you can please go out and find that podcast to listen to the, the aspects of the technical requirements of it. But certainly the new rules are going to have some impacts for SPACs and target companies on the DSPAC and the litigation front. So breaking that down a bit, what are you seeing as some of the changes and what does that anticipation look like that the new rules could have on both, both sides of it, right? The SPAC and the target companies from a liability perspective. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the new rules, again, they're not set in stone yet. There's there's a comment period that we're going through. But, you know, in their current state as proposed, you know, they do a few things that that I think clarify uh, where liability stands from, as you mentioned, right, the, the SPAC team, the, the target and the underwriters. Right. Um, and where their kind of liability uh, lays in, in all this. And then it also clarifies or, or provides a, a better framework or new framework for how certain disclosures are being made and what needs to be disclosed. Right? And when we think about, you know, the litigation environment, these are the avenues, right, that the SEC is giving plaintiffs to make claims, right, that you didn't fall in line with what the SEC is requiring as far as a, you know, a disclosure perspective. But, you know, if we run through some of the key uh, topics or key changes, right, um, 
definitively the SEC is now saying that um, SPAC teams do not have safe harbor protection under the PSLRA um, regarding the forward-looking statements that they're going to put in their proxy filings. Not a massive change here. I think the applicability of that was, was kind of questionable to begin with, but certainly they are clarifying now that um, that will not apply. So you do not have protection for those forward-looking statements as far as litigation goes. Um, a DNO insurance policy, again, is intended to pick up the defense costs and settlement associated with shareholders bringing those types of, of actions. Um, underwriters, I think we've already seen it with, a, right, with Citibank and, and Goldman Sachs kind of putting a pause on, on writing SPACs until these rules are clarified because what they're proposing is essentially strict liability, um, treating like for like, treating DSPACs similar to IPOs in that um, you know, underwriters may have strict you know, Section 11 liability as relates to the proxy filings and the DSPAC transaction. I think that's giving the underwriting community uh, quite a bit of pause. Um, you know, the enhanced disclosures, right, maybe requiring a fairness opinion, um, giving a, a, a higher level of detail as to how the transaction is going down and why they believe it's fair to all shareholders and, and in their best interest and, and clearly stating, you know, what's going to happen with dilution. You know, those things, I think, from an underwriting perspective, when I say underwriting, I mean the insurance companies, those are welcome changes, right? And should hopefully help with the health of the overall SPAC market. When we think of uh, the DNO insurance policies right now, they are very expensive. Um, and the reason being is that uh, the underwriters are somewhat concerned about the level of diligence that's being done on some of these deals. And obviously a number of them are trading below par value. Enhanced disclosures, fairness opinions are all gonna help underwriters get more comfortable with these, uh, with these transactions. I think the last point as far as the SEC rule changes go that I think is most important really relates to the target companies and their kind of liability. So the SEC is going to require that um, a few things. One, that the target companies be co-registrants uh, on any uh, S4 filings, right? Um, basically listing the shares as public as part of the exchange. Um, and they're also going to consider these transactions, regardless of structure, uh, a sale of securities. From an insurance perspective, this is a material change in that a target company's private company DNO policy, right, um, has an exclusion or a specific exclusion that's going to kick out any claims that come in that relate to the sale or purchase of public securities. Historically, these transactions were viewed essentially as a share exchange, right? It's, it's a merger of two entities. By changing that and definitively saying that these constitute a sale of securities, you need to be really aware of what that means from a, a litigation standpoint and coverage standpoint on your private company DNO policy because it'll likely get kicked out. There's solutions that we have to, to deal with that and how you structure both you know, your private company DNO policy, the new policy for the go forward combined entity. But certainly that's going to create some friction um, and, and really require a thoughtful conversation with an, you know, an experienced broker within the space to make sure that there's no gaps as a result of that change for the target and go forward company. Uh, but those are the things that we're, we're, we're keeping an eye on. Again, we're in a common period right now, so some of this may change, but if they stayed as, as they were, most of this is, is more so clarification of, I think, liabilities that existed with the exception of that change for the, for the target. Right. Yeah. Before I, <clears throat> before maybe I pivot into the next question, I guess just a just a follow up question on that. Are, are, are you seeing an increased level of activity 
from the target company community inquiring with with you guys about what these changes could mean because certainly as you mentioned i think 599 specs looking for a deal there's going to be right. a certain number of target companies that are going to be attractive certainly some that may be a little less attractive but but still pursuing that path are, are you getting additional inquiries as it relates to, to that aspect of the changes certainly right i mean it's kind of top of mind i think what a lot of the conversations that we have with with target companies that are thinking of going through a SPAC, it, it, they maybe don't quite understand their securities liability pre-close uh, in the sense that, right. you know, we're not going through the IPO path, so we don't, right, we're not filing an S1, but now you're going to be party to an S4, which is essentially the same thing, right? So it's a registration statement, but uh, in, in the context of a DSPAC. And so helping our clients understand that you do have securities liability pre-close for representations you're making to the SPAC, right? And that's going to be included in the proxy filing. You have to make sure that your existing DNO policy pre-close is crafted in a way to pick up those liabilities and that, the frankly, the limits are adequate to account for a securities class action claim, right? The, the types of claims you see as a private company are far less severe from both settlement and a defense cost perspective than what you see in a, a context of a securities class action claim. So some targets may buy very low limits of insurance, right, pre-close. Um, may not buy Dino insurance at all. And so having that um, upfront conversation with them about limit adequacy and coverage adequacy, frankly, uh, is really important. So certainly having a lot of those conversations today. Okay, good. Well, ho hopefully they're at least paying attention to it and so that it, it, it brings the question. So that's good. But I think you, you, you talked about this uh, high level for just a moment there as we were pivoting. Are, are, are you guys anticipating about making changes to the way policy DNO policies are written, just just as a result of the rule changes, or is it just more in in general, or, or are you seeing specific provisions that you, you need to think about changing? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So let's take that in kind of two parts, right? The SPAC team's DNO insurance policy that they buy at the time of the IPO that protects them kind of during that diligence period up until close, and then the target company as well, and then the combined company going forward, right? So. From a, a SPAC team perspective, right, that's buying insurance for their diligence period, nothing really needs to be amended within uh, a DNO policy. You have to craft it in a certain way that's different than what a traditional public company buys. Generally speaking, you're buying a longer policy term to line up with your due diligence period. You need to make sure that that tail coverage is pre-negotiated, meaning that at the time of the DSPAC, we're going to extend your policy out for six years. So that any claims that come in post-close that allege you did something wrong during the time you were SPAC, like those proxy claims, uh, are going to get picked up and then housed within an insurance policy, right? Um, and then we also need to make sure that those other parties, right, potentially the financial institution sponsor behind the SPAC, the this LLC the sponsor that's created in conjunction with the SPAC, that all that's going to be picked up. And, and off-the-shelf DNO policy won't, won't do those things correctly mechanically. So you, you do need to craft it in a certain way. Um, the target company policy, as we mentioned, that is, is something that you need to, to kind of take a look at the language, right? The exclusion I mentioned within private company policies that's relating to the public sale or the sale of public securities and now having that, that requirement to be a co-registrant um, and that the, the transaction is deemed a sale of securities, that changes things a little bit, right? And there's ways to make sure that you can get coverage for that, um, for that exposure as far as securities class action goes but it needs to be crafted in a certain way. So that, that, that as a result of the rule changes will need to be looked at a little more closely. Um, but 
overall, right, the, the way these policies are crafted are intended to pick up, you know, these exposures. You don't have to do much. The one thing, again, right, is just kind of the target company liability uh, and the exclusion within those policies. So you, you, you've mentioned coverage a couple times. So maybe you can expand a bit about coverage options, how you would structure sure. a SPAC IPO DNO policy. And, and then I think there's a, a host of other questions that would follow on past that, uh, that we can unpack, like when to start looking for coverage for the SPAC, for the target company. Um, is there a time that's most appropriate? And then we can maybe talk about coverage limits, levels of coverage, et cetera. So maybe, maybe just kind of start with just expanding a bit about the coverage options and how to get to that. Perfect. Yeah. So if you're a team that's looking to, to file, right, an S1 for a SPAC IPO, DNO insurance is, is likely going to be kind of the single most expensive thing that you purchase. Um, that is a, a, a matter of the kind of supply and demand economics of the, the marketplace. There are few insurers that will write this. Generally speaking, because there isn't a tremendous amount of settlement data applicable to SPACs, right? There's there's been a tremendous amount of claims. They take two to four years to, to settle out, so um, they don't have much data as far as settlement defense costs to rely upon. So the, the insurance is priced well above kind of you know what we had seen maybe two or three years ago. Um, because of that, you kind of have to get creative with how you structure a DNO policy to account for your pre-close exposure and your post-close exposure, right? And and what's the best use of your, um, you know, uh, call it sponsor capital to set up the SPAC. So if we think about your exposure pre and post close, pre close, there really isn't the ability for shareholders to bring a securities class action suit that alleges loss, right? They can bring these nuisance style claims, but there's the transaction hasn't occurred yet. Their capital is held in trust. They're going to gain interest and they have the ability to vote yes or no and, and redeem their, their shares, right? So your your risk profile and your exposure pre-close is less than that post-close. And what I mean by post-close is, you know, if you were to see a class action where there was actually loss incurred, right? The example we brought up before where there's a short sell report you don't need. Your targets that you, you presented as far as your proxy, there's a, a, a fall off in the share price. The securities class action gets brought against the SPAC team for the disclosures they made in the representations. Now we have tangible investor loss, right? And that's could be big dollars from a settlement perspective, certainly from a defense cost perspective to defend those claims. Um, so you can get creative with how you do this. One, one option I think that we've been employing quite frequently is what we call kind of a conversion approach to limits, whereby you buy a lower level of coverage during the due diligence period. You know, um, and it's going to vary by SPAC depending on you know, their risk tolerance and, and the budget. But for example, you are buying five, maybe seven and a half million pre-close that converts to 10, 15, 20 million post-close. So you're saving you know, your, your at-risk capital up front, still getting what we would call adequate coverage just in case, but then that limit is increasing um, at the time of DSPAC to account for your increased exposure. The cost to increase those limits and, and put them into tail coverage at the time uh, is a, you know, a deal expense, right? It's being paid off, you know, likely off the balance sheet of the combined company. So you can move those things around to get uh, a little more uh, creative. Generally speaking, structure-wise, again, as I mentioned before, you're going to want the policy to line up with kind of what the maximum due diligence period is going to be. So 18 months, 24 months. You want to have the tail coverage uh, pre-negotiated from a cost and a limit perspective. Um, and then making sure that the policy is endorsed to pick up all the parties relating to the SPAC. So that's the SPAC itself. 
the LLC, the sponsor LLC, the board, all the employees. In some cases, uh, we've had requests for, for certain third-party advisors to be added to the policies. We want to make sure that the entire universe is, is covered. Um, Timing-wise, right? When do we start this process? How do we how do we make sure that we give ourselves enough time to do this right? The market is obviously somewhat challenging, but the solutions are out there if you have enough time in advance. When you're filing or getting close to filing confidentially with the SEC, your S1 for the SPAC, that's when you want to engage a, a risk expert, right? A broker in the space. And what we'll be able to do is give you kind of a, a sense of the market, what your options are, what we'd likely see from a pricing perspective. And then when that is ultimately filed confidentially with the SEC, we take that S1 out to market and that begins the process. And it's usually somewhere around two weeks, three weeks start to finish uh, to get your your uh, your options prepared and proposed to you so we can have an informed decision on what makes the most sense for the team. Um, as far as the target company goes, when we think in the context of, okay, we're going through a combination, we're now gonna be a publicly listed company, we need to think about go forward DNO insurance, right? That's gonna protect us from basically closing date forward, right? Anything, any issues with Ks or Qs or restatements or press releases in that context. That conversation needs to start well in advance of, of that closing, right? So prior to even the, the deal being announced, if you have an LOI in place, start contacting your broker so you can set that strategy, right? Um, you're going to be buying considerably higher limits than you would as a private company. It's going to cost a lot more. Your deductibles will be higher. And so it's best to get out in front of that as, as much as you can to make sure there's frankly no surprises when you're going through that process. I think the market is actually seeing a significant slowdown in the number of new SPACs. Obviously, that's probably directly related to the fact that there's still 600 of them out there looking for a deal. Um, are, are you guys seeing that the, the majority of the inquiries are coming on the target company side and not so much on the SPAC side, or are you seeing kind of a still, still kind of a consistent flow? Yeah. I mean, so certainly it's slowed down from a issuance standpoint for the SPACs, right? I mean, you have 66 SPACs searching from 2022, let's call it, there's 28 that's filed for IPO. It's a, it's a much smaller universe than it was last year uh, for the points that you, uh, sure. that you gave. So. Really, we've, we've transitioned to where 2021 was kind of the year of the SPAC IPO, right? Where there was an incredible amount of SPACs that went public to now where like this is kind of the year where we're looking more at de-SPAC transactions, assisting SPAC teams with their tail policies, target companies align their insurance policy pre and post close. Um, there's definitely been a transition there. Okay. Got it. So we're getting, we're getting close to kind of wrapping up the discussions. Um, seems like there might be some unique change of control scenarios with SPACs where they're bringing in third parties, trying to get some deals done. Uh, how does that impact DNO coverages? And maybe you can just expand on some of those things you're seeing in the marketplace now that might be a little unique that we haven't seen in the past. Sure, yeah, so certainly a unique um, scenario that's popped up recently, right? So some of these teams that maybe are, are nearing the end of their um, diligence term or are kind of in the middle of their diligence term and don't have a viable deal on the table, some cases are looking to bring in, you know, third-party teams that almost want to employ kind of a rent-to-spec model where, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to bring a deal to the table, but we want an exchange for that. We want some of the economics. And what you have to be careful there is that within a, within a SPAC DNO policy, there's what's known as a change in control provision, meaning that if the existing team cedes the majority of the voting rights uh, for the board to another team, that the policy is going to cease covering anything 
that's alleged to have done wrong after that point. Um, and so in the context of what we just discussed, right, these third parties coming in and, and the exchange of maybe some economics, if there are uh, voting rights being exchanged, that is something that you really need to be careful with when you come to a DNO policy, because if you're looking to do that and then you potentially have to buy a new DNO policy for the team that's coming in and taking over, that can be incredibly expensive to do uh, midterm and, and make it um, not viable from a transaction perspective. So if that's something that, you know, if you're SPAC team out there and you're considering it, definitely make sure you're discussing that that provision with your broker prior to that getting put into place. Got it. Inter interesting, interesting structure. And I think it certainly highlights to me that over the last um, probably 16 months, we've just seen a mountainous amount of changes as it relates to SPACs from warrants to class A share classification to now some new disclosure rules proposed, et cetera. Certainly the litigation front sounds like it's only um, only going to be as consistent, if not if not more robust than it has been in the past. So uh, all interesting topics and, and certainly something that's outside of the media wheelhouse. So I, I certainly appreciate um, you coming on today, Andrew, um, to give us your thoughts and insights. I'm, I'm sure it's helpful for for all the, the, the folks who are considering a SPAC or even some of the serial SPAC issuers, and then certainly for the target companies who are looking to get into a deal like this. So certainly, thank you for your for your insights today. Absolutely, Mike, I really appreciate you guys having me on here. This was, this was fantastic. You know, it's an ever-changing environment, right? New rules, regulations, you know, different types of, of allegations within these claims. It's just important that you get out in front of it and kind of talk with an expert um, to make sure that, you know, you're not you're not left holding the bag and there's no gaps within your coverage for these types of things that should be picked up. So I appreciate uh, your time and everybody on the line and, uh, and thanks again. Yeah, great, great advice today. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you for listening to BDO Spotlight on SPACs. Past episodes and more information about BDO SPAC practice are available at BDO.com slash spotlight on SPACs. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. 